Welcome to the Instinctive Influencers Podcast, a show where influence becomes one of your tools for success. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Weber and Ed Haley. Hi, I'm Brian. And I am James. <laughs> James! Man, I'm, glad, I'm so glad we got rid of that Ed guy. He was so trash the past episodes. He was horrible, episode. man. Horrible. Oh, what a yeah. oh, just personality no, no bringing just terrible dude. <laughs> yeah, 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 man. I'm telling you. Hey, how's how, uh, how you doing, brother? You you look great. You look wonderful. I'm trying, man. Busy, busy. Yeah, yeah it's getting ready to warm up, man. I got like two days of rain to start the week, and then I can start riding a bike. And uh, the way prices are at the gas pumps, I need to ride the bike. <laughs> hey, funny thing. So, you know, my shoulder went down. I was driving back and forth to school, you know, uh, because I didn't want to have to carry my backpack on my, but now I can carry a backpack and everything like that. And the past week and a half, I've been walking. I, it's, I mean, it's literally, it's not even oh, like, a half I thought you were still doing the walks with, with the wife. I thought that's what those walks were. No, 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 that, that we still do that. Right. So okay. we walk, basically we walk the kid to school, drop them off. And then we complete a loop. That's just, man, just under two miles. Like it irks me every time we do it. I'm like, you could walk a little farther. I could, but I don't. Uh, I would, I would a hundred percent. I'm telling you yesterday I did a bike ride and I came in, I was going to be at like 31.6. Right. I drove around my, I rode around my block until I got to 32 on the dot. I was like, I'm not, no, I'm not doing (laughs) 0.6. So (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well i thought it was funny because i did i watched your re the relive thing that you put on facebook yep. and I think you put on instagram also um and and it was like some of the turn like i'm watching and i'm thinking did he get lost and yes. then realize he got lost and he had to turn yeah. around and so, go back like it was right. so funny so, watching listen, it i gotta tell you so i'm i'm going and i'm using google and i have these bows uh sunglasses right I, so i have them yeah, so I have those on so that I can hear the traffic and be safe. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I'm following this thing, and next thing you know, she's like, you know, slight left. And I'm like, that that's a dirt trail going up to the train track. Okay. So I go up there and I'm like, where the, where is this thing taking me? So I just bang a right and there's like a you know, like a utility trail along the train tracks, and I'm gone and I'm gone. And I said, Well, I should have a cut in back to the you know, to the community soon. Any minute now, I should have this cut in. That cut in has to be around here somewhere. And then finally, I was like, mm, yeah, there's no cut in. Turn around, go back. So <laughs> what it was is there is the train tracks, right? There's yeah. a walkway underneath. And I was supposed to go through the walkway under the train tracks, pop back out by the train station and continue my ride. I didn't see it. I didn't see it. So I was like, the only <laughs> turn I can make is into this parking lot or up this path. So, yes, there was two times when I just like. Uh, you know, I, I turned around because I got lost I, and I actually, I enjoy, I don't know about you, Brian, when I ride the bike, especially if I had the mountain bike, because I can, I have more, you know, access to more areas. I love getting lost when I ride a bike. I don't mind. I, 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 I don't personally mind, um, yeah. me it, cause if anything, I'm going to just go back the way I came, but, uh, yeah, worst I, case I, scenario, yep. I just don't like to get lost in the wrong part of town. That's all. You know what I mean? So, yeah. <laughs> where no, so they take uh, my bike and my shoes and everything else. So I do worry about. Well, they're gonna have a hard time catching me on that bike right now. So I'm getting fast. 
I really thought it was going to be super sore. as the longest ride I've had in a while outdoors. And uh, yeah. no, I felt great. I could have rode this morning. I wouldn't have rode miles, fast, man. but I could have rode. Yeah. A couple That's of good. hill climbs. And not bad for an old man. I mean, no, I'll, be no, 50, not, I'll be 50 not at all. in a couple months. <laughs> And that, you know that's something that we constantly you know, we've talked about a lot about you know um, and it I think it goes along the lines too of of you know being an influencer of and I'm not saying like not an internet influencer like one of those fake yeah. you know those fake people who just try to get money because they're influencing people to buy products yeah I'm talking about like somebody who's a leader some you know. If you're out there doing this stuff to keep yourself healthy and, and, and young and you expect it of the people, you, you're at least doing it and you can expect it from them. You can't expect people to do things that you want, you're not willing to do. And, you know, I mean, we're not we're not spring chickens, Ed. We're not running fast like we did when we were younger or anything. You know, oh, I yeah. mean, no. I don't I, I just <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't work that way anymore, you know, and you find I was just having this conversation with my buddy yesterday. So we did the we did this little a little over ten half mile uh, hike up to beautiful uh, pictures up to Mundy's Gap. Man, Mundy's Gap is pretty cool. Um, In about two weeks, I'm going to do the rest of the trek that takes you all the way to the Franklin Peak. It's about thirteen point three miles. Um, so, but I was having I was having the trip back down, and I was I was mentioned to him like. You know, I like doing a lot. Of, like, you know, I like, you don't like it. I know you don't like CrossFit, <laughs> but I like the endurance of things, right? I like, I'm starting to really enjoy the endurance running. I'm enjoying, I enjoy the endurance cycling or mile biking. And then I thought, I told myself, like, I have a fully stocked gym downstairs that I can mm-hmm. use for any, I, I want to transition from like that power. I still want a little bit of power. But I want to be able to do more of the endurance, you know, like to be able to, you know, my body to last in a certain way. Um, yeah. There's no, no need. There's no need for me to deadlift 400 pounds. Like there I really mean, isn't. There is. But okay. Uh, no, no. I actually, but I, there I've isn't. Slowed down, though, you know, I slowed down on the heavy uh, strength training stuff myself as I approach mm-hmm. this next. But milestone. strength training is important. It's so I it, not completely, completely eliminate it, but I have like, yeah, the, yeah. like you said, I, listen. The last few times that I've put, you know, 350 plus pounds on my back and tried to squat it, I've pulled something in my my thigh, right? And yeah. and I look at the second and third order effects of that is now I can't cycle. Yeah. Right. Now I'm getting where I can't yes. really, you know, it's uncomfortable to walk the dog around the corner when I first do it. So I had to look at those things. And this is like the last six months or so mm-hmm. that I kind of and that's why I started cycling indoors so much. And that's why. No cycling in January, mind you, but I'm at about 550 miles for the year. Nice. Um, cycling. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, but yeah, and then running, you know, I, I was doing the running for a bit and I still want to do it, but I've, I've been getting these treatments in my ankle and I'm like, let me let them do their thing first and then we'll come back to that. But cycling is, it's Zen. It is like you get out there and it's just you and the body, especially here. There's so many trails here. Yeah. Um, so you get out on these trails, man, and you're just like taking in the scenery and you're like breathing. And, you know, sometimes I don't put any music on, I don't put anything on. I just go. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a Zen moment. It's a big thing for me to, to help me get my mind yeah. right. It you is. Know. So, yeah. I think we did a show about releasing those mental, uh, those mental um, um, chemicals to help make your life better. Endorphins yep. are one of them. That's what you did. So, hey, heck yeah, man. I'm, all right. 
Ed. All right. <laughs> we, we had a great conversation there, and it had to do a lot of like just like basically getting out of yourself and going doing things, and then having realizations, right? Like you yeah. realize things, and we're like, hey, we're not as strong as you used to be. We got to change things up. I mean, um, by the way, I'm at 3:22 on the miles, so I got to play catch up with you. Um, <laughs> no, we're getting into a story here. Uh, we're going to get into, we're jumping back into our leadership lessons from, uh, from history. And this one, we're going into some world war one stuff because we had to bounce back. We jumped forward because, yeah. you know, one one we had to do it on one episode one one had to but do we're jumping backwards. Involved. Yeah. I mean, come on, dude, if we didn't do it, I would be disappointed in both of us. Uh, yeah. and then we did another episode last week. Uh, that was a little bit different. Um, and we we kind of jumped out of the history realm, which we'll do here and there. But this one, um, this is interesting. I'd never heard of this until you brought it up. You you sent it to me, and I was like, man, this is this is some good stuff. And and you mentioned you was like, hey, it's hard to find material unless you make it yourself on yeah. leadership lessons of World War One. And why do you, do you, is there a reason why you think that is so? So there is a lot of lessons to World War One. I just think that the war was so bloody and the way it was fought, you know, it wasn't as, as yeah, you know, there's trench warfare. I mean, and, and you're just throwing bodies at each other, uh, you know, it kind of makes it difficult to say, Hey, what are those lessons? Learned? I mean, there's some, I'm going to tell you, I, I wish I can remember the major's name and I'm not doing him any justice, but there's a movie called the lost battalion. It was made for TV. It's Ricky Schroeder. Um, mm-hmm. And it's actually I li- one of the history podcasts I listen to rated like these are the 10 most, you know, best military history films. And this is one of them. Uh, and in it, you know, the, they're, they're going to go over the trench and they're going to, you know, move forward. And he's got, you know, this major's like, hey, like this is, you know, this isn't right. We're running out of supplies. And he's like, keep going. You got this country on, you got the French on this side of you, you got another battalion on this side. Just keep going. Right. Meanwhile, these two battalions did not advance, but he did. And he ends up advancing into the middle of the German lines. Surrounded. Right? Surrounded. But he but he led them. So I mean, we can go back to what we've talked about before about the importance of being right. seen, being, you know, being that leader who's leading from the front. Even at the end of this all, and I don't want to ruin it for for people, but this is a good history story. Basically, that you know, everything happens, what the general comes, it's over. And he says, "Hey, get my command, my staff vehicle, and I'll take you back, uh, right? To, you know, back to the camp, and your men will, will march back." And uh, the major looks at him. He says, "If you don't mind, sir, I'll leave my men out of here." And he does. And it, it, they historically accurate. He gets up, and this major takes his men, and he leads. And so that that's there's leadership lessons that can be found in in moments like that. Great movie, right? But they're just. There's so much blood. It's so hard to say, hey, we learned from this. Like what we learned is trench warfare was terrible. Terrible yeah. way of fighting. That's what we learned, you know? Yeah. And I mean, the numbers that were lost alone and like, you know, those first few months was just catastrophic to all sides. All you know? sides. Um, I've had the uh I've been fortunate to go to where the scene of the Battle of Verdun was, and there's an ostuary there, and the ostuary is like it's this long building, right? And then it's got okay. it's got an obelisk in the middle that you can go up in. Right. When you go up, there's these little windows out that big at the base. And when you look in the window, it is the remains of British and French soldiers. It's bones, skulls, ribs thrown in there that, that weren't identified. 
Yeah, yeah. So it's it's wow. really like, to see this, and then there's a huge cemetery there. But to see that, like the just the numbers of remains, it just really drives home how bloody a war yeah. uh, World War One was. And this is no uh, difference. And I picked this because one. Many years ago, I did a World War One course, and I had to write a paper, and this was what I wrote my paper about. Vimy Ridge. Um, I did not retain all the information. However, the reason I picked Vimy Ridge then, as well as now, is to the Canadians, this is a very significant moment in their history as a country and mm-hmm. as a military, and it's widely celebrated. Um, my wife and I, this is around the same time I'm, I'm in this course. My wife and I are in Washington, D.C. We go by the Canadian Embassy. And there's a poster saying, hey, Vimy Ridge Remembrance Day, da-da-da. And so I was like, oh, that's interesting. Let me look into that. And uh, wow. so that's kind of what drove me to write this paper. Okay. I would like to take my wife there before we leave Europe. It's about five, six hours from where I'm at uh, in Vimy, France. Uh, so as we talk about this today, you'll see this is very, like, <laughs> this is the Canadians. Uh, <laughs> I know. This is the Canadians fighting as the Canadians. They're still a British. They're part of the British Empire, but this right. is them really coming of age. So, um, right, yeah. So that's why I picked it. <laughs> so, so how how do you want to lead into this, my friend? This looks uh, it looks well, really intense. It, it it is. By the way, the memorial just looks fantastic. I can't wait to see this memorial that they have there. Um, you know, very Canadian influence in the area. So World War One, as we said. There's several battles in World War One where there's multiple right. occurrences of that battle. This yeah. is no different. This is uh, Vimy Ridge has fought over for many years, and that's where the significance really comes in. So one of the first things the article we're using today is by uh, Roger Grant. It's called Vimy mm-hmm. Ridge Innovations and Leadership Lessons for Today. Right. So, so hey, I'll I'll, uh, yeah. I'll make sure that for those who are watching and not just listening, uh, those of you who are watching, I'll put up a few pictures of that memorial he spoke about because they they are remarkable pictures. Um, I I did a quick Google search and found a bunch. <laughs> but so wh- yeah. where are we going? Where, where are you right, taking so, us? So so when when you look at Vimy Ridge, all right. So the Canadians, I mean, the Germans are on this ridge, and uh, the ridge is about four point five five miles long. Uh, and it's 400 and, uh, 470, 480 feet tall. So it's, it has a huge field of vision from there. It's a great vantage point uh, during this fighting. Uh, right. It was the IRS campaign. And so, and let me look here. I, I did make some notes to make sure I get these things right because it's important in history, right? So from 1914 to 1916, uh, the the French are tasked with this this area, and they're trying to secure this ridge from the the uh, from the Germans. And in that time, so we're talking, you know, we're talking two years that they're fighting with the Germans over this ridge. And right. in that time, the French lose about one hundred fifty thousand people, um, soldiers, and they are not successful at all at, at pushing the Germans off this ridge. Um, so then they're they're replaced, right? It's time for them to move on. I believe that they actually go to the Battle of Verdun from here, and they're oh. replaced. Yeah, and they're replaced by the British. Um, the British Seventeenth Corps replaces them in nineteen sixteen to nineteen seventeen. Uh, during the lull between the you know like what we call a a rip, right? The relief in place. And while this is happening, what the Germans do is they start a tunneling system. We think about tunneling when we think about Vietnam, but here they're tunneling. They're putting mines underneath these in these tunnels. They're putting mm-hmm. uh, explosives 
to to prep the they're basically prepping the battlefield for what's next the germans are um okay so the british come in and again the british there from 1916 they can't they can't push these guys off this ridge and this is where it becomes significant for canada because this is the first time the canadians are fighting as canadians right they're not canadians a conglomerate of canadians and british forces these are them fighting as canadians okay one unit um and so the Canadians come in in 1917, and this the Battle of Vimy Ridge is from 9, 9 April 1917 till 12 April 1917. And the Canadians come in with four corps. And um, through their course of their time there, they end up successfully moving the Germans off of the ridge and capturing the ridge. So you're talking about something that couldn't be done from 19... Uh, from the from the French in 1914 till the end of the British time there in 1917, they have not been able to push these Germans off. But here comes the upstart four corps of Canadian soldiers to do this, right? And you know, trench warfare. We already talked about. You, you come over the top of the trench and charge forward as far as you can. You try to get in another trench. Uh, you're using shell holes, which are basically where the impact of artillery or explosions are. Well, what the Canadians do is they do um, what we would call combined arms, right? At this time, Brian, this this term isn't really coined yet, but we would call it combined arms. Okay. So what they're doing is you get your infantry lined up, right? And your artillery pounds, boom, 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 boom. And right before the artillery, right, stops firing, your infantry advances to that edge. And then the artillery lifts, the infantry stops, and then they continue to do this. Artillery fires. Infantry advances, stops, mm-hmm. and that's called a creeping barrage. And that's how the Canadians eventually worked their way up the ridge and displaced the Germans. So that's just kind of the all broad, big stroke, Brian. So this, you're you're, you're basically saying like that particular uh, mechanism of moving forward, it hadn't been really used no. like that previously. Okay, no, all right, not yet. So, and that's where when they talk about the Canadians and their great. Uh, story of their innovation of their tactics this is one of those things they're doing a combined arms movement and they're using a creeping barrage right now Mm -hmm. as we're going to talk about when our leadership lesson portion they also trained really hard for this right like it wasn't just a thing they did some extensive planning um they did meticulous planning uh extensive training to, to be prepared for that scenario um, and I, I don't think I did the casualty numbers. So for this, the Canadians end up losing, uh, 3,598, uh, soldiers, about 3,600 soldiers and another 7,000 wounded. Uh, the okay. Germans lose 4,000 are captured. There's some, some debate over the actual KIA of the Germans, but it, the estimate puts it around 16,000 uh, KIA during this, uh, during this campaign 16,000 oh my goodness yeah wow. <laughs> oh that means that technique definitely was something that they put in their tool bag and said yeah this worked let's do yeah. this again and you'll find all kinds of different like you know the german numbers are in this article he says 140,000 uh casually so there are different the the bottom line is there's a lot of losses on both um sides right for well not just both sides the french the british right um, they all had a, a great deal of deaths. Actually, if you look further in the article, they've actually called uh, in French this the Ridge of Death, 
right? Oh, really? Femi Ridge is called. Yeah. So, so basically, um, we're gonna take we're gonna take this entire scenario and we're going to kind of look at uh, why basically why the Canadians were victorious at the same time on the battlefield that others weren't, and 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 basically how they, you know, what are the 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 leadership lessons from that, right? Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's uh, that's excellent way to put it, Brian. I think what I'd like to do is maybe and then generate some discussion between you and I based off of these because, like you said, it's it's a brief article, really well done, right? Uh, really significant, and again, for my Canadian family, this one's for y'all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you yeah. know, we remember our veterans, and, and and then that's the other thing, Brian. We talk about our veterans and what they went through and the lessons they learned. But the Canadians, right. the British, I mean, there's so many other militaries that learn these valuable and unfortunately like this, these costly lessons. So, all right. So that's where we're at, Brian. <laughs> all right, so we're going to go uh, lesson one with this, uh, the radical battle plan? Sure. Okay. Um, so what, what what the author has to say here is basically uh, success at Vimy, Vimy came from an amazing level of innovation. Innovation, that's key, okay? And we'll yeah. get back to that. Canadian Army commanders refused to follow the familiar patterns of past battles. They would not wage war as usual. Mm. Instead, they designed and executed a battle plan that was radically different from any previous previous offensive. So basically that creeping method that you brought up, that was that was not used and it was it's great that they they looked at it as okay, if we do this then this is what's going to happen. Yeah. And then we can do this and this is what's going to happen. So this, this really reminds me a lot of when, uh, for instance, Ed, so we're going, I'm going through the department of joint right now. And we also did this in the department of army operations. And part of the things we did in it is, uh, we build courses of action or COAs for right. a battle plan or for a plan. And in it, you do, we've talked about this, you're going to love it. We talk about war gaming and (laughs) red teaming and things like that. And it's where you kind of lay out this scenario. Hey, we're going to do this to get a reaction. And then somebody plays the side of the enemy and they say, hey, we've done this to counter that. (laughs) And then we do a counter to their reaction. So it's action, reaction, counteraction. And you go through an entire scenario Basically, until one side wins or not, and it's and it's it's kind of a game of chess. But the key thing with it, Ed, is you have to actually um, you have to know the intel on the opposite side. What what are the capabilities of the enemy, uh, right? Capable, yeah. Or my adversary? What are they known for doing? Right. So yeah. this is what they're typically known for doing, and then. How much time do we have? What's the weather like? Like all the permissive PT type stuff, all the yeah. you know, all these different things. I'm looking at this and I'm hearing what you're saying, Ed. And I think about this like the Germans were probably expecting the same stuff from yep. them as they did from the British and the French. Absolutely. And, and so let's say let's let's reverse back in time, Ed. Let's say they did. They're wargaming like that, right? They they like, hey, we're gonna plan it. We're gonna do the same thing we've always done because they they've always done it this way. What the Canadians just did is they threw a massive, massive <laughs> monkey wrench into the cogs of of basically scheme of maneuver and all that jazz. They literally changed it up through innovation yep. and under you know a creative th- thought process. I don't know. Like my question would be is like, 
who came up with this or who, how did they develop this particular method to, to go into it? And what they did was, is they did the unexpected to achieve yep. the goal that they needed. You know, that's, that's where I get from it, man. Yeah. I think one of the things you hit on is, is one of the biggest things that we've talked about before. That's the all, way we've always done it. Right. So in yeah. your organization, in your civilian organization or in your formations, that's the way we still hear this. I know, I don't know about you, Brian, but I'm telling you, I still hear this now. Well, we've always done it that way. Well, is that person supposed to be doing that by doctrine? Well, no, but that's just how it's always been done. That doesn't make it right. Like, and that's yeah. what I think about when I see this is the Canadians weren't going to do it the way it's always been done. They weren't going to accept it. They had to come up with some. They were led by a man named um, Julian Julian Bing, uh, which also, side note, his wife uh, later donates a trophy to the NHL in like 1924. <laughs> it's the Lady Bing trophy. <laughs> this is still a thing. It's the Lady Bing trophy, and it's awarded to like – the um, most sportsmanlike it's voted on as the player that they deem the most sportsmanlike player for the season receives right. the lady bang and it is his wife. But anyway, so they're, they're led and everywhere you go, you can see his name all over Canada. Right. Right. But this is why, like he's the leader of this, this, this unit coming in here um, from the uh, first, it's the fourth, it's four corps from Canadians first army uh, at mm-hmm. this battle. But, yeah, it's just, you know, you, you say it, it's funny to me, like, here's this leadership lesson about not doing it just because that's the way we've always done it. But here we are, you know, we're here a hundred years plus later and we still have these problems. We still have people doing it because that's just the way we've done it. Um, now, if you say to me, hey, that's the way we've always done it, James, because this is what doctrine says, or this is what the the you know our organization's policy states. Then okay, I got that. I'll give you that one, right? But if you say, well, that's just the way we've done it, and you can't support it with some kind of you know policy, then then that becomes an issue. And, and I think that um, with the Canadians, you know, uh, one of the techniques that I learned about when I went through the master uh, leader course is audacity on the offensive. And and here yeah. it is, like yeah, like they're kind of offensive and defensive in this because they're moving and they're still accepting from the Germans the fire, but right, and they're you know they're hitting these trenches, but but audacity. All right, well, these I, dudes, these dudes are on a ridge, almost five hundred feet above you, looking down on you, and you're still yeah. advancing on them. I mean, but you're you're doing something different, and now I I have to uh, I got to warn people of this. It doesn't mean every you go into an organization as a leader and you always change everything. You first no. got to understand the situation before. Um, and we call in, in the army, we call that understanding the operational environment. That's yep. what it is. So yep. I, I have to understand all the factors of the operational environment before I can just boom, throw a plan at it. Because what if, what if what's taking place actually works, right? Maybe there's some small pieces here and there, but overall, it works. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't change it. You don't want to disrupt a system. However, in this case, because this is you know in a wartime situation, they were disrupting a situation by throwing a new solution to an old problem. It was an old problem. Mm-hmm. They've always had it, and it's like it's ba- it, to me. It was the way the the British and the French kept trying to do it. Um, it was very much like the definition of insanity. You know the whole constantly doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different outcome. And then that's not going to happen. You know, it's like, you know, I I mean, yeah, for instance, Hey, here's a great example, man. Um, 
we think about Michael Jordan, right? We think about Michael Jordan's ability uh, and all these things that took place. However, people often forget he came into the league many years before he started winning championships. Yeah. And uh, he was yeah. and one of the big things that you, if you watch, like if you watch in the different specials about him is like he was throwing down heavy numbers. He was an all-star from the beginning and he was killing it. He just couldn't get over the top and get a championship without a good supporting cast. Yeah. You can't win the game by yourself. Now, later on, he gets a great supporting cast and he's still performing at that level. Boom. Okay, I got it. Yeah. It's the same thing to me like with a military problem or a business problem. You can have all the talent in the world, but if you keep trying to like pound that door in, if you're if you're punching a steel door with your bare fist, you're not going to get anything. What you need is a battering ram. You know, you need some explosives. You need some stuff to yeah. kind of jumble <laughs> it up. You know, that's what I think of. Um, yeah. But that's a good that's a good way. Uh, do you want to take us further into the next area? Yeah, this one here is uh, new thinking, new tactics, new technology, um, and they they adopted. So the Canadians adopted a new combat philosophy. Right, the creeping barrage. They implemented daring field tactics, leveraged new technology, embraced a revolutionary command structure. In the process, they created the modern model of warfare, which is still in use today. Combined oh, arms. Yes. Combined arms. Uh, you know. So for this, though, I'm going to go and tie it into the first point with the innovation, because here is saying they adopted a new combat philosophy, implemented daring field tactics, right? Leveraged new technology based off of new thinking, new tactics, new technology. But where's that new come from? Well, it comes from innovation. And where's that innovation come from? Well, I'm be honest mm-hmm. with you, Brian. I feel like for us, at times, the innovation comes from the young soldiers. Because you and I have always done it the same way. Mm-hmm. That young soldier is going to say, well, you know, when I played high school football, we did this, this, and this, and this is how mm-hmm. we got prepped for a game. And now you put that in your figure a way to like creatively put that in your physical training program, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And you may change the game on how your soldiers train or how they receive it. Right. They may not be like, oh, here we go again, because you did something else. Maybe do gorilla drills. Remember all gorilla drills? I usually mm-hmm. actually like doing gorilla drills. Oh, but but I think that that new thinking it comes from the the, the younger's younger people. But right, right, it comes from one of our main sponsors, Brian. Lifelong learning, right? <laughs> Lifelong learning industries. Because Brian can bring something new to the table too that he just learned in his current whatever master's class, doctor class, whatever class. You, I know for a fact you've learned stuff in college, and yeah. then brought it into the army. Because I've oh, done yeah. it, right? Oh, yeah. We're doing it right now at this podcast. I'm I'm mm-hmm. a military history major, and we're bringing this in to help people understand how influence works. Yeah. So I think it comes from not just the younger generation, but also from those people willing to be lifelong leaders and to think outside the box. Yeah. You know, uh, you started bringing all that <laughs> up. And you, start, you started slinging those crazy words around. First thing, it popped in my head, Kolb. Second thing, experiential learning like i was just like that's you like calls too <laughs> i do i like i love well i love the idea behind it because what you're doing yeah. what you said about is like hey this kid he comes in he, he says hey we did this before we played this game um and it helped us that's experiential learning right there you're taking their experiences 100%. you're helping everyone else learn from the situation you're building upon now like i said all the time though you can't 
you don't want to change everything. You know, not everything is broken all the time. Now, if it is, yeah. maybe you may want to look at the organization. However, even the, like we're talking about, we're talking about uh, basically military battles and stuff like that. But this translates easily to me. Easily, at, I'm sorry, James. Uh, this translates easily into the civilian market. You know, and looking at. Okay. tactics techniques and procedures i you know and it could be anything from you know if you're a salesperson or if you're um you're somebody who's working in the security department or the it department there's always new mechanisms out there that could help elevate it yeah but don't start implementing you first got to do a little bit of an analysis of it as, and that's why i like, like and analyze it and be like okay is this is this really the mechanism needed for our ability to achieve the goal we set for, you know, is this the new thinking we want? Is this the new tactics? Um, a lot of times when you look at Ed, uh, I keep calling you Ed, <laughs> James. I'm, I'm going to see how um, many episodes it takes before you, you stop. It's going to take forever because I never it's knew okay. James. I only know. It's Ed. all right, buddy. I never knew James. I didn't know him. I don't know James. Um, <laughs> But the new thinking, new tactics, you know, you look at a lot of companies, they bring in leadership from outside the company, right? Mm -hmm. They want that new thinking. They want that new strategy. Like there's, it's funny, but if people within the organization would start pushing like their, their new ideas, they maybe get elevated in it, you know? So that to me, that's a big thing, man. Yeah. I, I think we just have to be a little bit cautious too, because, you know, we have, in our organization, we have these good idea folks sometimes. Uh, but we also, the problem is when you have these people who you bring in and they have good ideas, right? Because obviously you and I, every three years or so, we're going to move, right? Yes. And we have our, yes. we have our bag of good ideas, but if you don't do that analysis and say, okay, what's this, or where's this organization? Yeah. How can I help this organization? What can I bring to strengthen the organization? And you just jump in with your good ideas. You get a reputation. It's called a good idea fairy. Uh, you just mm -hmm. go in and you sprinkle your good ideas around and, and it doesn't always pan out and it, and it ends up putting you in a negative light. So you just got to be very cautious to that analysis yeah. you talked about, Brian, so crucial. You have to analyze the situation when you come into it before you start trying to help develop and, and make your organization a better place in, in your view yeah. and, and make sure you get buy-in from the people you work with, right? Like you can't just go in and say, well, this is what I think makes us better, period. No, yeah. no, no. What are your thoughts, Brian? I mean, yeah, it's just, it's, it's one of those things that, uh, yeah. James, that you just can't, you, if you do it, if you come straight into a place and just try to make a change, I, you're going to get what's called change resistance. Uh, yeah. you're going to have people to say that that'll never work. You're going to have all that. You have to evaluate Wait, what's going to be the mechanism that kind of slides mm -hmm. this idea in that kind of helps flow it along. It you just you have to, and I think that comes down to a new way of thinking and and, and being able to do those things. Uh, yeah, you ready to move on to this next area? Let's All right, I love. Oh yeah, I know this worked out good for you to have. What yeah, you yeah, got, I, there, Brian? <laughs> I, this this right here is visionary leadership. I, I to me, um, being a visionary and 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 trying to kind of set a pace and set a tone for an organization. And when I say visionary, it's like okay, this is what I see it can be not mm -hmm. what it is. And that's what's to me, that is critical to be able to do. You're setting up the motivation, the drive, all those things, the initiative, you're setting up all that stuff through that vision and how you do it. But let me, let me read what it says here real quick. 
the ground the groundwork for Vimy victory was laid by two visionary leaders, Canadian Corps uh, Corps Commander Julian By is it Bing Bing Bing, Bing. okay, yeah. and then Major General Arthur Curie. They began their planning work in the late fall of 1916. So right there, uh, James, we we've already we're showing that this isn't something that they started two no. weeks before they went and fought in 1917. No, nope. this this was started a year prior. Yeah. So they're looking, they're assessing that 1914, 1915. They're in 1916. They're assessing it. They're like, ah, you know what? We could do it this way. So yeah, all right. So Curry was a rarity in military leadership. He had worked his way up through the ranks from lowly uh, militia gunner and was Canadian born. Buying uh, was not a Canadian, at least not yet. Three years after the war, he became the highest ranking of all Canadians serving in, uh, as the country's 12th governor general. That's, that sounds pretty important. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. A lifelong military man of North noble birth, Bayan came from a long family line of army generals that dated back 150 years. There's, there's some history there. Mm -hmm. you know. He began his army career at an age 17 and graduated from a leading military college. He had a distinguished service record from postings in Sudan, India, South Africa, Egypt, and the... Dardanelles. So what I'm getting here, Ed, is we got people that are not they're not of the norm. They're yeah. not they're not from that normal situation. They kind of came from different aspects and they worked their way up through, you know, starting at that bottom. Like that, I don't know what a uh, a lowly militia gunner is, but I'm <laughs> guessing it's kind of like a private, right? It's kind of like, like to me, yeah. You know, that's yeah, what I get. So lowly militia gunner, like, hey, you with the big gun, you over there, you know that yeah. type of thing. But, um, so really, if if you if you want to back it up, uh, James, we we're talking. Say, I'm going to keep going, uh, James, because I can't. It, this this isn't where it's not Crunch rolling the tongue. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if you're looking at it, we're talking about two people who came from uh, different past, different backgrounds. One of them, 150 years worth of experience. Mm -hmm. The other one, he came from the bottom, worked his way up. The both of them, they're building this plan since 1916. They implement it in 1917. So it goes to show that they had a vision back here. They projected it, <coughs> and they it enabled their forces, I personally think, to become victorious yep. because of how they devised it. Your thoughts, man. So here's what I was thinking, Brian. You know, we're trying to figure out like these some of these terms, and I do have some friends in the Canadian military I should have reached out to. But so I look at it as you got private, right? Private Curry, the lowly just joined the army. But then you have Bing, who's the West Point graduate. And now they're in command together, right? One's, you know, in our case, let's, let's use what makes sense to you and I. One's the Sergeant Major and one's the Colonel in the battalion, right? They came different paths to get there, but they have a shared vision as leaders that led them to start planning this well in advance. That meticulous planning allowed them to then do some extensive training. So they were doing training behind the lines prior to assuming uh, command and control of the Vimy Ridge region. 
And I think that's where we get to. We're looking at these two very different military paths, but now they're together and they have a shared vision, right? So I I think that's what I kind of got from this, Brian. And and I also got the they send a lot of people out to Africa and India in in the Canadian military back then. We don't we don't get those posts very often. You know, it, I what I want to want to kind of just throw out there before we jump over into the very next section that you're going to hit up on is we did a we did a a show not too long back about mission command and yep. as I'm looking through this and I'm understanding it further from your you kind of like projecting it as this is the story this is how it went I see mission command written all over this written all of it now is there some command and control James yeah. There probably yeah. is. Oh, yeah. It definitely is because of yeah. that type of warfare during that time. You got to think about it. It's you fire, you hold. All right, move. You know, and, and it's all these types of, you know, there's there's some command code, but in the in the mission command piece, I see competence. Uh, yep. I see mutual trust, right? Those soldiers are trusting that that command has made the right decision yeah. on shooting those artillery over them. So they can move and that stuff's not going to come in at them, right? Because it's not like the artillery is like literally like 10 or 15 feet. It's probably a little bit back from them, obviously. But it's impact. So so sorry, Brian. So when they're doing this creeping barrage, it's impacting 10 or 15 feet in front of their advance. So there's some trust there, right? That you're going to stop firing and I'm going to be okay. You're not going to shoot me from behind. And yes. you're also not going to hit me in the front. So and, and back then, it was harder to communicate. You know, they don't have these high-speed radios that we have now. There's a lot diff- more difficulty of communication. So there had to be that trust that you're talking about. That's very important. I'm glad you brought that up. Absolutely. And then we got shared understanding. We got that one down. The commander's intent, guaranteed it was out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole, hey, this is what we're going to do because we've built this plan. We know it's going to we, – we have – great you know trust in it. it's going to work they got the mission orders uh the the discipline initiative i don't see that as much but maybe it's, it's the discipline initiative of yeah okay that it is coming it's gonna come and then risk acceptance you think about what you just said <laughs> yeah you got artillery you know they just coming in and it's like that's there's some major risk here we're yeah. taking on massive risk but oh yeah like but let's 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 move on. Let's where are we going next? All right. So we're going to talk about the approachable aristocrat. So you, you already talked about Bing was a high-ranking British aristocrat with close ties to the royal family. But he was not a cold or distant commander. He was refreshingly approachable and demonstrated a genuine concern, a genuine concern for soldiers under his command. He won the heartfelt admiration of Canadian troops who proudly identified themselves as Bing's boys. Genuine (laughs) concern for a genuine concern for soldiers, Brian, especially from, for what I have witnessed as an enlisted guy, a genuine concern for soldiers. will you'll have a whole career. If you just have that thing, Mm -hmm. you can learn the other stuff, but you have to genuinely care about your soldiers. Right. Um, and in this case, he he could have been, hey, I like, like I literally had dinner with the prince last week or the king. You're beneath me. But he wasn't. And I picture being down there like, you know, he's in the muck and the mud in these trenches with them, right? 
Mm-hmm. He's hating life just like they are. And just like I talked about with that movie, The Lost Battalion, the, the major that Ricky Schroeder plays in that movie, same thing. He They show him. He's in the trenches. He's stuck in the German lines with them. He's separated from everybody else just like they are. And then that gains that that leadership capital, really. But, you know, oh, he's hating life just like we hate life right now. So you get that mutual understanding uh, going and I think that's what this is really trying to get at with uh, with Bing. Yeah, oh yeah, a uh, genuine concern. Um, that right there alone will give you so much credibility, so much respect. And we're not talking about like when I say genuine concern, like actually being concerned about like what's going on. You know how you can take care of them. Uh, you do. You know, in our day and age, there's lots of things that go on. Like not even dealing with you know the battle that we have we take general concern genuine concern in but a lot of times my thought is like where's their head at like i'm i'm concerned of where where's the the person's head at when Mm -hmm. we're in the thick right do are they concerned about this this or this you know i've got to be able to battle that by reassurance and things like that um but he won the heartfelt uh, admiration of Canadian troops who proudly identified themselves as Bing's boys. Bing's is that, boys. Is that a is is that something that's talked about among you know the Canadian? Uh, I mean, I groups? haven't I don't, heard that. So I think it's kind of like so. There's a story uh, going to the next war, and you know a lot of people did not enjoy General Patton. They didn't like him as a person, but those that served with him. So if I said to you. Brian, what what you what unit are you in? You would usually say, "Well, I'm in, you know, I'm in 12th Cab uh, Combat Aviation Brigade, or I'm with 159th Combat Aviation Brigade Bravo Company, 563rd, right?" But with Patton, they would say, "I'm with Patton." They they wouldn't necessarily say the unit. I'm with Patton, and I think this is kind of similar to that. Hey, what outfit are you with? Well, I'm I'm one of Bing's boys, and I think that that's the old veterans. Unfortunately, definitely this generation has, has been lost to us. Um, but yeah, I, that's the first time I had saw it. I went back and looked at it, and it's definitely in some of the research that I did. So I just maybe just brain dumped it at this point. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's just one of those terms, you know, hey, who you with? I'm, uh, you know, I remember my very first section, I was artillery first, and my very first gun section, we were second to none. We were second, right. we were the second gun, but our name was second to none. And they'd say, Hey, what section you're in? You wouldn't say second. I'm in second to none. And it right. didn't matter. They knew. They knew what battery you were in. They knew all that. So I think it's one of those things that comes with the admiration of the leadership and the pride in the organization mm-hmm. that we've Absolutely. also talked about. That's important. Yeah, I had a conversation. Um, it, was, it was with a SAR major um, uh, about a year and a half ago. It was, it was not too long ago. And his... One of the things he 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 brought to my attention, and I'm like, man, that really makes sense. It's like, how do you get people to be so ingrained and proud of the organization? And then this could go across. It doesn't have to just be the service. It could be whatever organization. And I was like, hey, I'm proud that I work for blah, or I yeah. or I'm a, a part of the team at blah. And he, and this is how he put it to me. He's like, you know, he's like, if you think about it, you know, you're wearing that that one-on-one patch, you know, on your, on your shoulder. Cause you obviously went to combat with him and you identify yourself as I'm a one-on-one guy, right? Yeah. Just like you'll have other people that identify themselves as a, I'm an 82nd guy. Or I'm a first cap guy. Mm-hmm. He's like, 
you don't hear a lot of people say, Hey, I'm a, this, you know, this particular organization person. He's like, I want to change that mentality. I want people to be proud to be a part of that and say, I'm a blah, blah person, you know? And yeah. I'm like, man, that, you know, that you're building, you're building something when you do that. You're, you're that. So it makes me wonder like what, what was the mindset of the soldiers you know, to take, they finally, they take on that, that nickname. Um, but beyond that, like what, what was the attitude? What, you know, what, what was it that just kind of made them be a part of that? And it's, it's that part of leadership is that part of influence. It's, mm-hmm. you can't buy it. You, you can't, cannot. you, you have to earn it in some manner. And it could be your thoughts, your smarts, but you got to be able to be a personable person. You have to be like, there's lots of little elements that have to go into it. So um, let's move on though. Oh, no, oh, go ahead. So, so real quick, you may, you make a great point and we've talked about, you know, these, these patches, we call them combat patches, right? Like um, yeah. it's funny because I find a desire to wear the patch of a unit after I'm gone. But when you're in the midst of it, I don't know if it was just me being disgruntled, right, with that particular. So when I'm in first cab, you know, I had no choice. Well, actually, I did have a choice at that time still. But when I'm in first cab, right, I have two patches I could wear because I had been before with 10th Mountain. But I would always wear the 10th Mountain patch. Why? Well, because I'm currently in this environment and I just I was not happy being there at that moment, in the moment, right? Then I leave. Now I leave and I go to Fort Drum. But now all of a sudden I'm like, you know what? I'm going to start wearing my first calf patch. So I slap on the first calf patch because I've left the environment now. Now I'm back in 10th Mountain and I'm like, yeah, I'm not wearing that. So it was weird for me. That's just a me thing. It's not necessarily this Mm -hmm. is how it's supposed to be thing. And then another thing I had, Command Sergeant Major Rodney Rhodes was my Sergeant Major in my battalion. And we were running around first calf and, uh, Wearing the 10th Mountain Patch. And uh, this was when Brett Favre went to Minnesota. And he said, do you think Brett Favre is going to show up to his next football game with a Green Bay Packers jersey on? And I was like, no, Sergeant Major, that's ridiculous. He says, but you have a 10th Mountain Patch on when we're redeploying, not a first calf patch. Now, at that point, I just became a jerk and resistant. And I was like, yeah, I'm not changing my patch either. So, But I knew what he meant. And I knew he wasn't wrong, right? Here's the ceremony to welcome back the first cavalry division, and I have to wear a different patch. So, but yeah, I always remember him saying that. Like, you think Brett Favre is going to show up in Minnesota in a Green Bay Packers jersey? <laughs> so, yeah, I, and I, and I, I would agree with him. Yeah. I would agree because uh, I was once told you have to love the one you're with, love the one you're with, and um, I, I would, I wore my one-on-one patch all the way up until I deployed with another organization because all my other deployments were one-on-one. Right. Um, oh, now yeah. I have so a your, choice. Your situation is a little unique. Yeah. Yep. It was a little unique, but I, then once I earned that one from the other one, I changed it out because you know, I, I got to sh- one, I got to show my, in my connection to that organization stuff. However, since I've been away from that other unit, <laughs> that other organization, I continue because inside I'm still a one-on-one guy, you know, and and that's the way it'll be for I just a very like a, long time. I didn't like being called a chicken sandwich, so I wouldn't wear the double eagle. It's just I think it's that's uh, my thing. It's just a me thing, right? It's not a, a, a organizational thing. It's not a doctrinal thing. I just don't like having matching patches. 
Yeah. I, I don't know. Something about, yeah, I don't know. I'm a weirdo. All right, let's move on. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, this is then the next the next area is good for you. It's called open to new ideas. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so open to new ideas. Despite his military bloodline, academic training, and decades of combat experience, buying was remarkably open to new ideas, even if it meant going against the prevailing wisdom of the day. So he's basically saying, "Hey, this is the tactics, techniques, and procedures we mm-hmm. that have been using. We're not going to do that. We're going to do this other thing." Uh, Buying and Curry, Curry rejected the war of attrition doctrine that saw combat as a pure numbers game where victory came to the side that threw the most men into battle. Man, I'm glad we got away from that, huh? <laughs> uh, That's, yeah. They refused to perpetuate the senseless slaughter of previous battles where soldiers were ordered to march in tight formations right into the firing line of 500 round per minute machine gun batteries at the battle of the Somme in 1916 this approach resulted in 57,000 british casualties in the first half hour of fighting are you are you kidding me like i mean come on man that's so basically they said hey listen that's getting people killed entirely too much. There has yeah. to be a better way. There has to be, you know? And then they took that conviction. They took their understanding of military warfare. They took their understanding of how the enemy's fighting. And they developed this yeah. plan <laughs> that you talked about. And to me, that's how like you come up with these new ideas. It's not... These two did not just show up to the organization on day one and say, oh, we're changing everything. They had to look at things and say, okay, this is not working. This didn't work here. This could work if we do this, this, and this. And they probably war game through it. Guaranteed they did. They practiced it, like you said. They they ran drills. So they did everything to make them successful. They did everything yeah. up to the execution. Now it comes down to those uh, individuals fighting to rely upon their training and their understanding of this new way of fighting, and they did it, and they became victorious in their efforts. Absolutely. Go ahead. No, I really want to go to the next point because it's going to play so well into it. But um, in, do in it. Our organi- uh, but in our organizations, you know, things are. It, it, this is again the, the old way of thinking of that's how we do things. But you got to be open to these new ideas. And so you're talking yeah. about um, you're talking about the you know the the way the innovation, the technology. So. The next one would be victory through artillery. So Bing and Curry were committed to make Vimy a different type of battle. And this is important, especially in World War I. They wanted to accomplish something that had never been done before. They wanted to pay the price of victory with artillery shells, not men. And so when you talk about the casualties for uh, British casualties in the first half hour of fighting 57,000, right, in Somme, that's that was the that was how the mentality like they're expendable in World War One, you know it, it wasn't they weren't humans they were expendable piece just throw it at it and there are countries in World War Two Russia fights a very similar idea that's why their casualties are so out of whack with everybody else because Russia is just like throw them throw people at it um, where we throw money at it anyway. <laughs> So they wanted to change the game. Okay, but how? Because with the technology, like there would be a lot required. And what they did, 
It said it would require significant improvements in identifying hitting enemy targets and a new level of orchestration between enemy fire and infantry advance, the, the combined arms approach that results in the creeping barrage. So what these guys do, and this is the best part of this whole blurb for me, uh, so new technology is needed, new techniques would be have to be perfected, learning would be vital. In 1916, Curry went on a fact-finding mission to interview uh, British and French officers to learn what had worked and what hadn't at the Battle of the Somme and Verdun. Did he just do an AER to try to save lives, to develop a new way of doing things? So going back to what you were just talking about, Brian, did he just say, hey, here's this new idea. Let's be open. I mean, if I'm a soldier and you say, hey, we got this idea, we want to do it this way, and it's going to cost us far fewer lives, I'm all in. Push all the chips to the center of the table. I am all in, my friend. So that's why I thought this one went really well with the point before, Brian. What are your thoughts about victory through artillery? Um, we're showing that it still works today, um, and it's and that's the reason why it's such an important piece. But to me, now I'm wondering, well, what does artillery look like for a, an organization that's not in the military? Like, what is the, uh, what is that? cover fire, so to speak, for an organization to get ahead and to do better, you know, and it could be all kinds of things. It could be uh, new, new products coming out to kind of help propel the forward movement. We could look yeah. at Apple, right? Yeah. We look at, we could look at Apple and their development of the different types of products and how they'll, they'll push out this new idea of this new phone mm-hmm. or this new iPad thing and it helps them gain ground you know and may not I mean and it might not come out for a few a few more weeks however they're projecting sending that artillery forward of information to inform consumers hey we got a new product here it is and we're, we're kind of project the information's out in front of the product because one you're gonna got to advance that product up. Right. And it's the same. And obviously, this not war. Right. I get it. However, there are means we could take to get our forces forward in anything we do. Yeah. And it could be menial stuff. It could be it could be the smallest tasks. Sometimes we have to have something to kind of project, you know, motivation in itself will do that. If you learn how to motivate people or finding what their buy in is or what it does, sometimes that is your artillery. That's your artillery mm-hmm. to push those people forward to allow them to make gains. Sometimes that's what people need. You know what I mean? Like yeah, coming yeah. to a job every day and just grinding it out, that gets tiresome. It really 100%. does. Well, what if uh, what if I said, hey, Ed, um, I, need you to contr- I need you to get X amount of contracts done through this program. And for each one you do, um, we're going to give you percent on the deal that you've made with that organization um, once it's pushed through. Well, that's a kind of a that's kind of like that carrot situation. You know what yeah. I mean? You put the carrot in front yeah. of the horse. That's what that is, and it's the same mentality in a sense. Is I'm doing something to motivate. So uh, yeah, I I personally the fact that what you just said with the the AAR part, I love that. That to me, that's yeah. an AAR before there was an AAR. I'm yeah. telling you. <laughs> so I was just thinking, and, and you and I recently, you turned me on to to a, a certain podcast, 
and they were talking about some of these streaming services. And to me, ready? Hear me out now. You correct me, Brian, if you think I'm I'm mis I'm misreading this. Creeping barrage, artillery, infantry moves up, right? So what, right. so the infantry is the thing. We know what they do, right? So the NFL is the infantry. We know what they do, right? Yeah. But now Amazon has a streaming service. The infantry moves up. So the infantry is is holding Amazon up because Amazon knows what they're getting in the NFL. They know yeah. what they're they know what the product is. So they're just pushing the envelope. Where can we go with live sports? Can we mm-hmm. can we get the Super Bowl at Amazon? And and I think Pat called it what Fang, Fang, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google are those streaming services, right? That are mm-hmm. trying to get into live sports now. And it's mm-hmm. so odd because I've been talking to my wife a few times about the live sports and the streaming, but that is to me that technology advancing. We have a known entity, the NFL. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and so within your organization, what's your known entity? And what's that thing that you're going to use that entity to hold up, to push forward and advance? That's that's kind of how I see it, Brian. If I'm crazy, tell me I'm crazy. Well, and so here's the deal. What are you gaining when what are you gaining from putting those on those streaming services? Well, this is what I see it as one. Those streaming services are a lot more affordable than like that NFL ticket package thing, Ooh. right? Like that's expensive. Yeah. Like Which that one is, of them is getting ready to buy, probably. <laughs> but yeah, exactly right. But if you're making if you're making this an affordable thing, now what did you do? You just increased your market, your yeah. market of viewership. What does your market of viewership do for you in the background? Oh, advertisers. Oh, now I got more sales. You see, what I'm saying so. Yeah. There's. There's the cause and effect, and that's that's a big thing in business. Is understanding business is like things aren't just okay. So we do this show, we do this. It's pretty much free. No one pays for anything. There's no advertising in it. There's, I mean, we have our gimmicky fun ones. We we pay in our blood, sweat, and tears, Brian. Yeah, yeah. And (laughs) and so in every year, I I pay um I pay like a hundred dollars for to to push this out. Um, and then we, you and I, obviously, we each upgrade our equipment here and there. Um, you obviously you use some of your stuff for just the podcast, and the other stuff you use for everything, like your GoPros. Um. But when it comes to that, that particular thing, what you're talking about, that, that victory through artillery, they're using that to get that market of people because I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not. I am not going to buy a Sunday ticket. It's too much money. It's yeah. money coming out of my family's, you know, and you look at and, and, and how things are going right now, too. Like, let's, let's, let's look at the economy, right? And now I'm jumping over into, I'm not getting yeah. into the political side, but I just want to look at the economy. We look at like gas, things like that. What's some of the things that can still be fun to do and you don't have to go somewhere and spend $80 in gas because, you know, to fill up my truck, my, my truck's at, 80, at least $80 to fill it up. My wife's is, was 50 the other day and then she has a little tiny gas tank. So what can I do as a family that'll be fun and we all like, you know, it's all oh, streaming services. Well, I'm not going to pay for one service that costs like, hundreds of dollars i think it's like 350 it's it's pretty expensive it's 300 the plus, nfl yeah. ultra yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but i can pay and have like three four five different services mm-hmm. and one of them just happens to offer what i like along with the stuff that my family likes where's where's the deal i'm going with the one that does all the services and that's the smart thing about it so you you hit the perfect nail on the head with the uh, the victory through artillery, that's that's a big thing. People need to think about. It. 
Well, but what about a leader though, Ed? So okay. what are the, you know we think about we think about victory through artillery with a leader. What is it that they're doing? What's their artillery rounds going ahead to of their subordinates to get the subordinates forward? You know what I mean? Like what are the things we're doing? It could be as simple as changing policies. It could be changing. Uh, I'm I'm working on getting the motivation esprit de corps of my organization by changing this policy to do this. Me personally, I think it comes down to hands in pockets, my friend. Those of you in the military know what I mean. <laughs> the Air Force, the Air Force just changed theirs. Yep. That's a new rule. They just changed a few things. They can they can walk and talk on the cell phone. They can eat while walking. They can walk around with their hands in their pockets. They can double roll their like it's just like the small yeah. things. It's a part of it. And I have an Air Force buddy that goes to school with me here. He rides. I, I try to ride with. Him. I can't keep up. He's fast, man. Um, but. He told me, he's like, man, these are just, these are the types of things. And I had a conversation with my friend, yet another friend yesterday. I said, you know what? It would be funny to do like a little commercial type thing of like an army guy and, a, and an air force guy just standing in there. He's like, you know, the army guy saying, Hey man, what happened to you? You know, you used to be one of us. And then the air force guys, it's not you. It's me. I had to change, you know, <laughs> something stupid like That's that, man. Kind of, actually kind of funny. I mean, but you know, we, we all laughed back in the day when the Sergeant major army allowed black socks and physical fitness oh, I loved uniform. It. I'm wearing them right like now. It's really black socks. That's what he's worried about. But was that what he was worried about? Was he working on some esprit de corps? Uh, was he was I, he working on morale? With I don't care what things. anybody says. White socks after one use, they look like garbage. Black yeah. socks, you can still wear them every day, and God, they still. I look used good. to hate soldiers <laughs> coming to formation with gray socks on. It's like, oh, what? What are they supposed to be? Like, but yes, so yeah. small, right? Small thing. Just you know what? You guys can wear black socks now. Boom. That's like, what that's it is. A, there's an uptick. Right. So, all right. Next section thorough preparation. And we're not talking about uh, preparation H. We're talking about thorough <laughs> preparation, Why neglecting nothing. Uh, while on that trip, Curry uh, jotted in his notebook that uh, what provided to be the guiding philosophy for the Vimy battle plan. He wrote, thorough preparation must lead to success, neglect nothing yeah man that's that's a lot dude uh and that's that's all that was under that section really because then the next page goes into those eight. yeah oh yeah so prepare 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 uh we talk about rehearsal 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 um yep. in what i'm doing now where i'm working now um in school on uh, school military school not um goodness I, I can't wait to tell you about my next class it's Nothing about leadership. It's all about management. And if you add anything about leadership in that class, you're wrong. You have to talk uh. only about management. Yeah. So I'm. I have to shift gears. Like I'm used to doing this one thing, but I love it because it helps me broaden. But thorough preparation. So one of the things we do in school here uh, is we're we're running through these briefs and we prepare these briefs. We you know, obviously it's a PowerPoint, blah blah blah, whatever. But it's the fact that we go through the rehearsal okay. of. The simple things is my slide comes up. Hey, I'm going to talk about X, Y, Z. Then I'll be followed by such and such, right? It's that transition. If we didn't go through the mechanism, right? I don't see it to be a flowing brief like it should be. And it's the small things that matter. Like I don't have to, like we don't have to do the preparation. We don't have to do the rehearsal. Right. No one says you have to. But we do it every, and we've done multiple briefs in this particular uh, department I'm in right now in this class. 
And each time we still do the, even though we've done it before, we do it again. And then the next brief, we'll do it again. And, and preparation helps neglecting nothing because nothing's left out there. Because I can tell you right now, James, every time we've done a preparation, there's always been a hiccup. Hey, should we do it this and say this or not do that? You know what I'm saying? So there's yeah. always something that comes up. We fix that problem in the preparation. So we're not we're not sitting there looking like dummies during the actual brief in front of our evaluators. Yeah. Your, no, your thoughts, sense. man. Cause I know you do a lot of that stuff I'm, where you work now. So I, first of all, let's talk about preparation. Let's talk about the bearded ninja. Oh yeah. my goodness. Have I ever met? I mean, I think I've mentioned on the show, this dude used to teach the empty chairs. Chair one, chair yeah. two, chair one. Schmother yeah. Kelly. What do you think? But, and it was stuff that he had done over and over. I mean, that dude's been teaching there. I mean, you and I left there. Well, we got there in 15. And he had already been there for a long time. Mm-hmm. And he's still prepared like it was the first time he taught a class. And that is the difference maker. That's how you're the chief of, of the, the, instru- the instructor mm-hmm. course like that. Yeah. Because of that. I mean, I'm going to tell you, I, I remember being evaluated and not rehearsing and just being like, I got it. I've done this before. Now, my evaluation was not as good as when I prepped. I, I learned a valuable lesson, right? Because first of all, in the preparation, that, that gets you comfortable with the material. But then when the student, right, you're facilitating the student ask a question that could be way out in right field, because you were prepared properly, it allows you to field mm-hmm. that question and maintain your status, right, as the shmi or the subject yes. matter expert. But if you don't prepare and you – that confidence, that's where the crutch words come in. That's where you're tap dancing when the soldier asks you a question that you probably should have known. So that's where I think the preparation um, comes, you know, that's where the success comes from in the prep. It's in the preparation. I mean, yeah. Hey, so a uh, thing came to mind. Uh, I just wrote a paper about informal leadership and uh, their, how to use their talents in organizational change. So for one of the first things I thought about was organizational change. When we talk about preparation and leave nothing, you know, out there is when you have organizational change, you're changing something in that organization. That's a big key factor. You're going to have that change resistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you, when building the change, build in factors to help guide through that resistance you're actually ushering along that change a little bit faster, yep. a little bit easier. Those roadblocks are no longer like big barricades. They're more like a a road a, a, a rumble strip or something. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, okay, we're there. Okay, let's keep going. And too many times we say, all right, we got to change this. And we're going to do it this way. And then you get yep. to our, uh, a, a resistance and then it's like, oh, crap. Give me a moment. Let me think about it. <laughs> but if you prepared for it, you wouldn't yeah. have to do that. Give me a moment. Let me think about it. You, you got to, you know, um, great book is uh, Leading Change by Cotter. Cotter, Cotter Change Model um, is a big thing. Great, great book. And he helps guide people through that in that in that book. I used that book when we changed the curriculum. That was that was the basis of my entire change model of using or it wasn't my change model. It's his change model. I used his theory to help changing the curriculum at the BLC at the time. And when we had those naysayers, I had got the right people on board. Steve. <laughs> the, the right people, the right people helped 
ushered in because they were excited about the change. So what do we do? We got to create an excitement to do this. Do that. So that's my little soapbox on it. Let's move on, my friend. Well, I got news for you, Brian. We're going to combine. We're going to combine arms on this one. You ready? So Yo. the first one is a new command. Bing and Curry scraped or scrapped the traditional command and control leadership model that treated soldiers as little more than human tools. This is real now. British Army training manuals back then stated that soldiers should instinctively obey orders without thinking. First of all, I don't <laughs> want, I do not want a soldier who doesn't think about organization, but we'll get on to yeah. that. Uh, their yes. only job was to do as they were told. Remember that? Do as you're told. Do as I do as you're told. Uh, yeah. Not what I do. So in this <laughs> top-down approach, battlefield objectives were only divulged to a select group of officers. Rank-and-file soldiers were kept in the dark. If anything happened to their unit leaders during combat, which was a common occurrence, the soldiers were left adrift aimlessly across the battlefield. And I thought that that played into the next one, which is, we're going to come back, Brian. You're going to get to, I see it. No, we're no, in. go ahead. Get it all at one I, shot, love it. I love this. Go ahead. Uh, we're going to come back to, so making soldiers fully informed and fully engaged, Bing and Curry refused to put their troops in this position. They wanted an army of, they didn't want an army of mindless pawns, but a fighting yes. force that was fully informed, fully engaged. So they took the extraordinary step of explaining the platoon mission vision to every soldier weeks in advance of the actual battle and walking them through the assignment on a full-scale replica of the actual battlefield sand table. Every soldier uh, knew which enemy bunker they had to capture, where it was located, how far it was from the Canadian trenches, what route to travel, and what obstacles they were likely to encounter along the way. The soldiers Mm. learned every detail of the coming battle except the date it would take place. Brian, oh my goodness. You know, uh, first of all, I don't even know what they're, how they operated with mindless soldiers. And we've talked about a few times, kind of the old school mentalities uh, in mm-hmm. the military and the hands out your pocket, get off the grass, go make some coffee mentalities. Right. But yeah. it's so important. You have to have thinkers because, you know, experiential learning. What Brian has experienced and what James has experienced does not match what Captain Schmagatelli has experienced. But together, we can yeah. come together, right? And then mm-hmm. I think I told you before, I told you where you're going, the great place. You're probably going to the National Training Center in Fort Irwin, California. They're going to take out leadership positions to see if your subordinates can adapt. This mm-hmm. is ridiculous. These soldiers just, once their leadership was out, they just aimlessly wander across the most dangerous battlefield possibly in the history of man, right? <laughs> We're just out here and we have no idea what's next. So that's why I just thought they went so far into this. Like, And then again, when we talked about earlier about where did these innovations come from, right? They come from the experience of us, but they come from the innovation of young soldiers. And if I don't involve them in any of the process, where, how do I get that innovation, Brian? How do I get it? Creative and critical thinking, maybe. Oh, there we go. The two that's C's. One of my, I mean, yeah, that's, it's great. Yeah, that's, that's, that's one of my answers. Um, not only the creative, creative and critical thinking, but looking for those informal leaders within your organization that helps out. I, I'm, I like them guys I'm, too. And gals, I'm dedicated to that. 
that particular subject. Um, I, you know, so you went through both those areas, the instinctive obeying orders without thinking it automatically make reminds me, I think of revolutionary war soldiers lined up in file in ranks, walking (laughs) shooting just, and people are just shooting in this this big barrage of people. It's just like, to me, I'm like, like, how does that even make sense? You know? And then I look for, you know, then you look, so that was conventional war yeah. and conventional war. You know, now you look at what we do now is considered conventional warfare. However, what we do now can, in contrast to that is considered irregular warfare, you know? And where did we learn? I just wrote a, a, a massive paper. Um, I turned <laughs> you it in a lot on of Friday. writing, my friend. <laughs> all the time, man. It's, that's all we do. Um, but I just wrote a big one on, uh, on during the Vietnam war. And that to me, like the Vietnam war was the big one, uh, that really stepped away from the conventional warfare and into that irregular warfare of, you know, people had to get out. When you're out in a jungle mm-hmm. and you can't see five feet in front of you and you don't know if somebody's to your left or to your right that's trying to kill you or to be your friendly, you can't be just instinctively, and I love that word instinctive, by the way, uh, instinctively <laughs> obeying orders without thinking. You've got to keep your head. You have to be trained a certain way. And I think that comes down to that that new command model. Like when they talk about, uh, everyone knew the entire plan. They knew where they were going. Yep. They knew every step. That was a proper rehearsal. That was a proper way about going about making sure that if I have this person in within this group of people and they're going to move forward, I'm going to expect a loss somewhere yep. in there. However, I'm still moving that forward through my barrage of artillery coming overhead. Yeah. There's... There's so much to it, man. It's like, I, I, I didn't know about this story beforehand, Ed and uh, James. Um, and what's getting me, what's getting me is it's like, how did this not become a thing before this time frame? Like, how did that not like, like it's just all of a sudden these guys came up with this grand scheme on how to move through a battle. This is amazing. Yeah. This is a great story, brother. I love it. <laughs> no, I. And it's just, I mean, it's a thinking man's anything in your organization. You have to yeah. think things through. You have to figure out what's going on. I think it's important not only just to think, but to think what's the second and third order effects. Because I've met some great people who can think in the moment, but they don't think about the next part of that. What's that do? And then what's that impact? And who does it impact? You, so I've seen some people who can think like, okay, right here, right? Put my blinders. I I see mm-hmm. all this. I don't know what's going on out here though. Uh so I think that that's kind of important and um yeah, no it is a good I I've always enjoyed the Vimy Ridge ever since my wife kind of guided me to the Canadian Embassy in DC back in the day. Um yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, I so there's something, uh, something key that I got from this also, and it makes me think about that whole creative and critical thinking. Uh, when we think about, uh, we've talked about multiple times, like um, the Jocko podcast, and one of the things he gets into in his books, and I think he talks about in two different books, actually, um, and he talks about stepping back from the situation to observe it. Yeah, I feel like that's what they did. I think Buying and Curry did that. They stepped back from the situation they're about to get into, and they yeah. looked at it through 
open eyes of what could happen and they they just kind of like redevelop this and that to me that's critical that is so critical yeah. because they are the figureheads what happens ed if you that idea came from a private right and you had a stubborn senior what if buying was a stubborn senior and he wants to do it the traditional way and yeah. then joe who's you know from you know he's just a gunner he's the the he's the uh what is it, the lonely militia, militia gunner. gunner yeah he's over here saying hey if we did this this and this couldn't it work and then that that senior official is like no we're doing it this way you know what i mean like like that's where you get, that's that yep. idea that we got to get get into you know and think hey there's ideas everywhere that work so um well that's funny you say idea brian i think our our final point before we get into a little bit of a wrap up is going to talk about another uh, another one Oh yeah, uh, we're talking about the uh, another unprecedented step. Unprecedented step. Unprecedented. Unprecedented. Ian Curry took another unprecedented step in a war where maps were top secret <clears throat> documents, <laughs> only to be seen by high-ranking officers. They printed forty thousand maps <laughs> and gave one to every soldier. At Vimy, every soldier knew his mission and every soldier had a map. Like that. Ooh, yeah, that's a risk. That's great. That's a big risk. That's a that's big a risk. Huge risk. Because now my question, and I don't know the answer to this, is what was on those maps? What, I mean, that would be the question. What were, were Joe's out there writing out their plans on the map and that way they knew, you know, yeah. to help prepare for what was on them? What if the enemy got those maps? Well, what, what, you know, the other thing you think about, Brian, with such a centralized type of command structure coming into this, right? Like, the, you know, you you don't need to know. Only these people need to know. Um, were the maps that big of a deal? Were they top secret, really? Or was it just a matter of we only want certain people to have them, so they're top secret for that reason? So you got to kind of look at what they were talking about earlier with that and and I would hope the soldiers wouldn't <laughs> be writing too much information on there, but it is good to, you know, that visual, right? Yeah, it, absolutely. I mean, geez, land navigation, being able to say, okay, that's this on my map. That's that far. That's that, you know, that's that church right there. So I'm, I'm about right here. I know where I'm at, like in the, in the heat of battle in the fog of war, being able to pull out a map and figure out where you're at probably was felt pretty good. Probably helped morale. We talked about morale a little bit. Probably helped their morale. I mean, it depends on what made it top secret. I felt I I James. I feel like this right here. Um, that this situation wasn't that they. I don't think they were just pulling out map. This is how I'm looking at it. I by the way I'm seeing things by buying and, and curry and the way they plan this. They're not the type that just planned it, had them rehearse a couple of times and said, hey, rely upon your map. I'm yeah. pretty sure they run through the rehearsal so many times that everyone could probably count the steps they needed to take to get to the next objective. Yep. And yep. then it was memorized. <laughs> muscle memory. That's how we build muscle memory. And the map was a backup in case somebody forgot or messed up or some le some leader went down and somebody has to take their place. I mean, I think that's what that was. We said earlier there was a full scale replica used, which we call a sand table, which is just yeah. a, a representation of the of the battle space 
to be able mm-hmm. to understand how the movements are going to go and, and where you should be. And, you know, where for this case, they were showing them like, here's where we know the gunners are. We know there's a gun position here. We know there's one here. We know there's one here. You, yeah. you're taking you, your team's taking this one, blah, blah, blah. So I think that there was so much rehearsal and, and training and practice going into it that, that that was a big factor in the Canadians' uh, success. I'd be interested to know how much of this did the Brits do. Did the Brits do any of this? Or did they stick to that, we need to know, you don't, dig a trench, shoot, run out the trench, yeah. die. That's all we need you to uh, do. You know? I think I, I think you're right there. Say, so, hey, let's uh won't you bring us into that inspiring leadership wrap up piece and then we'll 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 just throw the questions out there at the end. All right. <laughs> all right, let's tie it all back. All right. So this I I like this and and this was inspiring leadership and I just kind of said, "Hey, this is going to be our wrap up right here for this episode." The Canadian victory at Vimy started at the leadership level. Bing and Curry were willing to break free from out-of-date thinking, embrace new ideas, learn from the successes and failures of others, and set up their people for success. So I think this is really going into that risk piece, right? When we were talking about you were mentioning uh, risk with, um, with um, yes, man, we did a whole episode. Yes. <laughs> I, just, yes. I just had a brain fart. Uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> anyway we're talking about the risk associated with this operation i think that's part of the risk is that they said you know what we're not doing it the old way we're going to do no. something different we're going to be bold and you know in the end it worked out for bing and curry they were bold and mm-hmm. the canadians did something that, that hadn't been able to be done in three years previous yeah it's to me it's it's remarkable to learn about this and then to understand it. And I, I, I can almost guarantee you, my friend, uh, we have army doctrine, we have DOD doctrine, we have all this stuff that supports this very idea and this creative thinking, this, this way of going that was not thought of before mm-hmm. that he brought something in and this is no wonder what now I, now I see why you said in the beginning, hey, this is why this guy is this important. And this is why this is a, a huge thing. And the Bing family and the whole name is a big thing with the Canadians. And, and then that whole uh, Vimy Day, because it's, it's a turn. It's a mm-hmm. turn in thought process and philosophies and just all those things. So definitely, man, I am... I'm very happy you have gotten to present this information because it really helps us look at, uh, you know, oh, that's where that comes from. You know, sometimes, too many times we have people think, oh, where did that come from? Like, whoever came up with that? This right here. This yeah. is one of those things. It's like, that's where it came from. Somebody used all this stuff leap years before their time. Yep. That's where he was. He, those two men. Uh, so I guess some, we got some questions here, Ed, before we wrap it up. I'm, I, I think we just we just present these questions and let the listeners think yeah. about these questions themselves sure. instead of discuss because I think we I feel like we answered the questions in we our did discussion. Well. We did well. <laughs> um, so the very first one is: Are you open to new ideas? Mm. So those of you listening, like just think of the words that I'm saying. I want you to think about what I'm I'm bringing to you is these questions. That if you can answer these questions, you may develop your organization you may develop yourself develop people yeah. uh, individuals so think about that are you open to new ideas what's your best new idea of the past six months 
Is your company ingrained in an old pattern of thought that could be undermining its future? Is, is that, hey, we, did, we always did it this way mentality. <clears throat> when was the last time you introduced a bold new strategy? If you adopted Arthur Curry's neglect nothing philosophy, what area of your business would you focus on first? Hmm. Think about the last six months. What successful actions do you want to repeat? What problem areas do you want to fix? What do you need to do to set your team up for success? And finally, does every team member have a clear view of the objective? Does every team member have a map mm. to get there? That's a hey, great like question. I do like yeah, that. Yeah, I, I, know. I really like that Me, last one. Yeah. And what is, and my question would be is like, what's your map? Show me your map. What's your map? What yeah. is it? You know, yeah. um, what's going to bring you to success? You know, um, and, and this was, this was a good one, brother. I appreciate it. I'm glad like you found this one and you just kind of, you developed the whole piece on this one. And I actually, it took a lot of stress off me this week. I had a lot of stuff that was going on. I was like, man, I'm glad, I'm glad he pieced this together because it was, was a good, good yeah. one. You know? um, and it, and it, and it kind of reinvigorated that idea that, you know, like there's a lot of old stuff that we don't know about or we don't think about that brings f- us to the future, right? And it brings us to the way of thinking now. And are there things out there right now that people can do or will do or are doing that's going to change the way an industry runs, a military runs, you know, things like that. So this is, that's a good one, man. Um, if we had somebody that wanted to find out more about this or us and they wanted to connect with us, right, James, if there was, they wanted to get to know who Ed used to be and then finally now know who James is, is there something that they could do or go? Well, thank you for asking Brian. I am glad that you asked. I can tell you what, Hey listeners go out there, check us out. You can, first of all, let's start with YouTube. We are on YouTube, Instinctive Influencers Podcast on YouTube. Go on there, subscribe, give some thumbs up, right? Give some feedback, some input. Um, Then from there, we encourage you to go to Facebook. Check us out on Facebook. We have a closed Facebook page. If you go on there, you click on the link uh, for the Instinctive Influencers, you answer a few simple questions, and one of our dedicated staff will approve your entry into the Instinctive Influencers uh, podcast. We ask you to uh, be interactive. Get in there. Ask some questions. Make some statements. What did you think of today's episode? What did you think of the last week's episode? What do you think of Brian? No, 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 no. Well, yeah, it's good to know too. Don't don't tell me that. <laughs> uh, but yes, also check us out. Instinctive influencers, one on one influence on Facebook, Instagram. Check us out on YouTube as well. All right, man. Hey, good one. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, brother. You got anything, any last uh, final words you wanted to throw out there about this this whole thing we laid out today? Uh, I think we're good, Brian. I thought we did a good job. I was worried. I was worried when we got it. I thought maybe it was going to go a little bit. It wasn't going to be a, as great as it was. I thought we did a great show, as, uh, as did, we usually try. No, my faith was uh, completely in your ability to develop <laughs> this. This is, I mean, there's this thing about this. Let, let's, I mean, you are the talent. I'm, you know, that's, that's normal. That's how I've been going about this the whole time. You're the talent that kind of, 
you're the voice. You know, I'm just the guy that's over here running the production piece and, and just piecing together some outlines <laughs> here and there. Today, you took on one more task that uh, now I'm like, what was he going to need me for? He's not going to need <laughs> me anymore. Like, get him a, a Roadcaster Pro, and next thing you know, he's Tr- producing trust his own me, I stuff. Need you. I need you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brother. Hey, great show. Uh, I, I got to figure out what button it is. Oh, it's that one right there. <laughs> is that one there? Uh, see, look, you've, you've, I'm, I'm lost without you. <laughs> With that, my friend, I am Brian. And I am the artist formerly known as Ed James. <laughs> 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 and this has been the Instinctive Influences Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great day. <laughs>